So we are wrapping up chapter 7 this morning. We are making our way towards the halfway point through the Gospel of Mark. Not quite there yet, but getting closer. This morning's message is entitled, Signs of Power and Compassion. And it's a little bit of a play on words, and you'll understand that as we move along. Here we find another opportunity to grow in God's grace. John MacArthur had a quote, and he said this riddle, Who is permitted to speak, but not able? And who is able to speak, but not permitted? And it's an interesting riddle, and it's one that we are going to look at this morning. But first, I want to discuss where we're at. We're kind of at a point of shifting sands in the gospel. We're kind of at a point where you've gone from the Old Testament prophets. And often in the Old Testament, when you read through, there was usually one or two that possibly stood up and spoke. There's possibly one, maybe two, that got up and confronted the nation of Israel with its sin. That declared, thus saith the Lord. There were some times where there were many prophets. And there was many times that the king sought the prophets to kill them. But we're hitting a time where the minimalist idea of one or two getting up and declaring the word of the Lord is changing. Now we're getting into moving from the Old Testament into the New Covenant, into the New Testament apostles, where Christ starts with 12, and he starts with a core group that explodes to the world, and we no longer have just one or two getting up and declaring the word of the Lord. We have many, and we have many that preach it falsely, but that hasn't changed. But we are seeing this time of shifting sands as Jesus now is getting his disciples prepared for their ministry. And many times we read through the Gospels and we read through them and we don't really stop to pause and look at what's kind of in between. We just read it as a continuation of a narrative. And it's like, man, when did Jesus have time to teach his disciples? But oftentimes when we look at those things and we read the scriptures, we leave out what some of the boringer things are. Like where it says here in our opening verses, he went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot packed in that, that we just, we read it and we're like, okay, great. But there's an amount of time there that's important. And we're going to look at some of that this morning. We're at a time now where Matthew 14, says that the disciples have now made a confession as Christ incarnate. They have now declared Jesus the Son of God. They have come to that understanding. John 6, 68, where they confessed that Christ alone had the words of eternal life. The disciples are now beginning to start grasping at some of the straws that will become the foundation stones of their faith. Jesus needs to take this time as a focused time of teaching. A focused time of teaching on the task that is, what is the gospel? Because the disciples have to understand what the gospel is in order to know what it is also not. Again, It's that idea of the tares among the wheat, right? We just sang that song, that hymn there that was talking about that. That the tares are going to be gathered up and tossed to the fire, but the wheat into the storehouse of the Lord. And it's the same thing here that the disciples needed to understand truth from a lie. They needed to understand the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, versus the gospel of man and the perverted gospel, which isn't a gospel. And Jesus, along this way and along this trek, as they went into the region of Tyre, they had the Syrophoenician woman, who Jesus used it as a a display of genuine faith, of what faith looked like, and where faith was pointed to, the object of that faith. 
and the fact that true faith does not decline or go away because it's confronted with a trial, but it's bolstered, it's grown. They also see that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. And praise the Lord for that one, as I believe most of us are Gentiles in this room. But you have the beauty of the gospel. So now Jesus is starting to build upon the foundation of the gospel, that it's not just for the Jews, but it will come forth from the Jews to bless the entire world. But he's hitting, what is faith? The disciples needed to understand what is faith because it's no longer just the commandments and the rituals of man that is going to get them to heaven. They need to start throwing aside the Jewish traditions to focus on the faith of Christianity. They were in this transition period of just Judaism alone to Judaism as it was supposed to be. They are, how does faith respond to the one it places its faith in? How does that interaction work? The Syrophoenician one was a great experience for them to see the glory of faith at work in an individual. That it is not diminished. That it is not broken down. That faith cannot be broken because it's met with opposition or it's met with a trial. But that it's bolstered up and that it's grown and that it's nurtured. And that it becomes rich and deep because of the object of the faith. Where does it draw its strength to persevere? Because faith is perseverance. How do people get it? These are the foundational bedrocks that the disciples are now being taught, that they have to understand, and they have a very limited understanding. Remember, the Holy Spirit hasn't been sent yet. But they have Christ teaching them. They have God in the flesh teaching them the truths of his gospel. He is unteaching Judaism and teaching faith. True Judaism, right? Judaism was set about for what? To show the world the glory of God, to bring people to God on his terms. And yet man took it and man perverted it and man made it a ritualistic tradition that was based on the ideologies of man and no longer based on the ideology of God because we want to be pious and pompous. Because we want to feel good about ourselves. Because I want to showcase my righteousness to the world. Because I want the reward that man has to offer and not the reward that God has to offer. So God and the Son of God is breaking down the barriers of the traditional Judaism that they were entrenched in. These men understood their faith and their religion, but they didn't understand their religion in the faithful context of the Son of God, that it was all meant to point people to Christ when he came. They would marvel less and less at how many people missed it because they understand more and more of what they lacked. It is a joyous work even in the midst of the violent waves of opposition. You will never find more joy than in sharing the gospel with somebody that hasn't heard it. Despite waves of opposition. Despite violent tendencies to the gospel. Why? Because as the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 2 said, because we place our eyes and fix our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. As we keep Christ in our focus... We move towards Christ. The rest of it just happens. 
The rest of it is just the goings on of this world. But we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, knowing that he is the perfect one, knowing that he is the one that is going to finish and complete our faith, that he is the object of our faith. Therefore, he is the strength of our faith because the son of God is not broken, because the son of God is not imperfect, because the son of God is not a sinful man, because he was God in the flesh, perfect, the complete fullness of God in human form. And unbroken. We have a living hope. We are not to be blind and deaf or mute, as we'll see some of that today. But we are to see the kingdom of God. We are to hear the Spirit and the Word of God. And we are to speak of the kingdom of God, of the glory of the King, and of the King's Son. That is our mission. That is why we are here. That is why we are on our journey. Right? If we look at what the disciples are going through, they're going through a very specific time of discipleship. Is that what we do? Is that what our life looks like? Are we discipling? Are we teaching those on the journey of life how to purport the gospel? How to speak of the kingdom of God in all circumstances, at all times, that God would be glorified? Because that is our purpose. Our purpose, like the disciples, is to take the glory of the gospel and to share it with people that have never heard of it. But we are also to take it, as Paul says, and to break down all these false arguments against the gospel. The lofty ideas of man. That man in his wisdom has concocted all these ideas that are trivial and dishonoring to the Lord. And we are to break those down. How? By the power of the word of God. Because just as God spoke creation into existence, so his word in the written word is just as powerful. Because every word of God carries the same weight. Every word of God carries the veracity of the holiness of who he is. Therefore, every word of God is perfect and is sent for a purpose. And we are to be good stewards of the word of God. And in that, it is in teaching and preaching the word of God. Not just to those who have never heard it, but continually to ourselves. Because we all need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Why? Because we need to continue to fix our hope and our eyes on Christ. And when we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves, we get distracted by what's going on in the world. We get distracted by the ideas of man. We get distracted by the frivolity of holidays. We had a great discussion this morning about why do we celebrate Christmas? In the traditional sense of American Christmas. Where did it come from? Why do we do it? My wife laughed at me this morning. She says, you continue to pound into me the idea of why do I do what I do? And now I see like I'm just looking at everything. And I kind of laughed. But again, the glory of the gospel. We need to fix our eyes on the gospel. And why it was given. It was given that man might be reconciled through the blood of Christ to a holy God. That man might come into right fellowship with God incarnate and with God in heaven. Because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us in order to give us understanding. Without the Spirit of God, the doctrine of the Bible is foolishness. God is very clear about that. To man, it is the foolishness of God, and yet, to the believer, it is what? The power of God unto salvation. 
this morning's text. We're going to look at it. And it's a beautiful preaching of the gospel. And it's a beautiful preaching of not only the power, but the compassion of our God. It's a glorious little piece of history that we can cling to and we can use. It also teaches us how to meet people where they're at in order to effectively communicate the gospel. This morning's text, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7, and it's verses 31 through 37. As Mark said, it's only six verses, so it shouldn't take too long. Not sure I agree with that, but we'll see. (laughs) Starting in verse 31. If you're not there, turn to the gospel of Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre, and he came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray this morning as we prepare our hearts to get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a written account of yourself. That you have given us a written history of your actions in our world and in our time. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in your Son. And that by the power of your Spirit, you unveil our eyes to see the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Who came and lived a sinless life and who died as a propitiation and an atonement for our sins, who was buried and yet who rose again in the power of perfection, sealing forever the fact that his atonement was enough, that you approved of it, that you accepted it, and that a sinful man can now come before you and worship because the blood of your Son makes us worthy. Father, as we get into your word this morning, we just pray for wisdom. We pray for a spiritual understanding of your word, that we would continue to grow in our hope, that we would continue to grow in our sanctification, that we would continue to grow in our worship of you. Father, we just thank you for the gospel this morning, and we just pray that you are honored through its preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Signs of power and compassion. We're going to look at a few few different points this morning. Our first one is a journey of discipleship. Again, I said this morning, sometimes we read through things and we miss some of the the understanding of it because one of maybe we're not understanding the region and the topography and the geography. And some of it is we don't understand how long some things take because we're in an age of instantaneous moving about. But we see in verse one, or in verse thirty-one, sorry, that Jesus, having went out from the region of Tyre, he came through Sidon. 
Sidon was 20 miles north of Tyre. That is a very rigorous, rigorous day's walk, if you could make it in a day. They had to go straight north. But it's interesting because it says that their, their original destination now is the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. That is on the very southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're already north and east or west of Galilee. Now they go 20 miles farther north just to go back east and then all the way south to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very circuitous route. Why? Think about it this way. If you had to walk with a group of people many, many miles for many days and weeks, how much time could you get in talking? How much time could you get in in instruction and learning? How much time could you get into taking in the sights of what you're going through and pointing out the glory and the truths of God? How much time could you spend in great fellowship and learning? How much time could you spend in being oftentimes the only people on the road? In face-to-face personal discipleship. We often lose the beauty of a journey in our culture. We get in a vehicle, we hit 80 mile an hour, and we pass by everything so fast, half the time you don't even know what you go by. But when you walk and you get out on a walk and you enjoy a nice slow mosey, if you don't know how to mosey, ask my son. He can show you. He's great at it. But if you take a nice slow mosey through a trail, see how much more you enjoy. See how much more you see. See how much more time you have to enjoy conversation or even to enjoy the contemplative quiet. This is what Jesus did. He took his disciples and he journeyed to Tyre first, which again was 25 miles from Capernaum. So then he went another 20 miles north. So you have 45 miles that he's north and west out of Capernaum. So then they had to go back east and then all the way south because Capernaum was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee and they went to the southern side. Jesus made it circuitous on purpose. He took that time in order to give them that instructional time that they need. Remember, we're less than a year from the cross. We're less than a year from them being given the command to go forth into all the world to baptize and to make disciples. They needed focused instruction and time with the Lord to be prepared for what was to come. How much time do we take out with our families, to slow life down, to have deep theological discussions? How much time do we take to slow life down and go on a slow walk in a mosey in order to point out the glories of God and His creation? To be able to take out time for focused discipleship? Oftentimes it's not enough. Oftentimes it feels too little too late. Oftentimes it feels like life is so full of other things, I just don't have time to do it. But Jesus was purposeful in carving out that time. We also ought to be purposeful in carving out time of discipleship. It says here that they traveled to the region of Decapolis. It's a 10-city state region, okay? It was down on the southern end of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. The word deca in Decapolis means 10, and 
polis means city, so it actually means ten cities. That's what the word means. It was a Gentile region outside of Herod Antipas' territory, okay? Because remember, Herod was gaining a great interest in who Jesus was. Jesus now travels down to a completely Gentile region. And it's interesting, because if you go back from our standpoint in time, and you do an archaeological dig down in that region, there's a lot of things you find. It was a very idolatrous area. It was full of pagan idols. They have found in archaeological discoveries today idols to Zeus, who is the what? The sky and the thunder god of Greek mythology, of the Greek pagan religion. He was also the chief of the many gods that they had. They had idols to Epaphrodite. She was the goddess of sexual love, beauty, and of fertility. They found uh, statues to Artemis. She was the goddess of wild animals, of hunting, of vegetation, of chastity, and of birth. They also have found idols of Dionysus. He was the god of winemaking, the god of orchards, of fruit, of festivity, the god of fertility, the god of insanity, the god of ritual madness, the god of religious ecstasy, and the god of theater. This was the culture that Jesus now brings his disciples after a very specific period of time of discipleship, and he brings them down to this region. But it's also the region of Gerasa, which if you remember, we've been here before. We had the demoniac, remember? Back a few chapters in Mark. The guy who had a legion of demons. This is the same area, because Jesus, when he sent him away, he sent him to where? Go back home, to the region of Decapolis, where you can preach all that God has done for you. So Jesus is coming back to a region that has now had a faithful witness of who Christ is. But we also learn earlier in Matthew 4 that many of the people in that region went up and traveled to Galilee to see who this was that was causing quite a stir. So Jesus is going to this region. Turn into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, if you would, please. We're going to set the scene. The Gospel of Matthew sets the scene for us. Mark is the only Gospel recorder who recorded the specifics of what happens. But in Matthew chapter 15, verse 29 through 31, we have the setting up of what's going on. Matthew 15, starting in verse 29. Departing from there, again, it was talking about the Syrophoenician woman. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled at what they saw, the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified excuse me, the God of Israel. So we see here that as they have a pantheon of gods, right? Many gods. They're a very polytheistic nation, right? Many gods. That's what that word polytheistic means. Jesus was able and capable to do what their pantheon of gods could not. That was hear and see and speak and heal. Jesus alone, the creator in the flesh, was alone able to do everything that their pantheon of gods could never do. Their gods were deaf, they were dumb, they were mute, and they could not heal. 
And yet, they brought all who were lame and blind and mute to Christ and laid them at his feet and he healed them and they were amazed. And in their amazement, what did they do? We're going to worship the God of Israel because, wow, he's doing cool things. Think about it. You worship all these gods that are able to do nothing for you. And then you find somebody that claims to be God and he does these great and marvelous things. So for a time, they set aside these gods over here and they're like, all right, we're going to grab this one because this one is actually doing something. Don't know how lasting it was. The scriptures never really give us an understanding of that outside of what we read. But it gives us a great contrast, and it contrasted this great for the disciples because they have now seen the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, and the leaders of Judaism see the exact same things that were just done here. And instead of glorify the God of Israel, they blaspheme the God of Israel. They hate the God of Israel. They are angry with the God of Israel because that's not who they had as their idea of who God was. God in the flesh could not be Jesus because mm -mm, wrong man, wrong location, wrong gospel. Do you see? That hasn't changed. We continue to preach the God of Israel amongst nations of idolatrous people. The idols may have changed. Maybe people don't no longer worship Zeus. Maybe some do. But we have the God of entertainment. We have the God of nature. We have the God of global warming. We have the God of politics. We have many gods that come in many different packages. But we still only preach one true God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. We still preach the God of Israel. If you look around at what's happening in Israel today and the wars, and the hatred of the world against the Jews, it's not surprising. Because God still has set his affection upon Israel, and has still claimed Jerusalem as his own. So the world is always going to hate it, because God has claimed it. We should not be surprised. But Mark, again, he is the only one of the gospel recorders that writes and records for us this deeply personal and compassionate interaction. It's a beautiful scene that now plays out the answer to our riddle that we had at the beginning. And I'll read it one more time for you, and I'm going to read it so I don't misquote it. Who is permitted to speak but not able? And who is able to speak but not permitted? We're going to look at that now. Now that we have set the background and the scene of what's going on, and where the disciples are at. And it's interesting that, again, Jesus takes them to a Gentile region. His first and foremost purpose, as he said, was to the house of Israel. And yet he takes the disciples and shows them, even though my purpose is exclusively the house of Israel, you still need to understand the fact that when I send you out, it's to the whole world, not just to Israel. This is a gospel that, as he promised to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Not just one. All nations will be blessed. This is where we find ourselves in our text. And this is where we're going to pick up the narrative. So as you can understand, Jesus sitting up on the mountain and the people are bringing crowds and gobs of people to Christ. And it says that they're laying him at his feet. Mark takes that narrative 
and now he focuses in on one. I just love how God takes the, the mass chaos and focuses in on an individual. Because he shows us the beauty of the gospel. Yes, it's for all men, but God zeroes in on an individual, which will be us, right? Each of us has had a personal, intimate relationship with Christ because God zeroed in on us, right? We're not just lost in the crowds. We're not just another one added to the pot. We are an individual whom Christ shares a personal relationship with. Again, the gospel, it is personal. It is individualistic. It is not just community. Okay, you are all blessed under the gospel. Go and be fruitful. It is an individual choice. It is an individual relationship. That is why your children will not make heaven on your coattails. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that alone. It is one-on-one. And Mark takes this time to step back from the masses of people and focus in on the one. Our second point this morning is he who cannot speak. We're going to answer that. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him one who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. There's a phrase there, spoke with difficulty, and we're going to get at that at the end of the message, but it's a very important one. But we'll get back to that. So they bring to Jesus somebody who is deaf. Now think about it. Somebody who is deaf, whether it's congenital or long-term, they can't speak well. Why? Because if you can't hear how something sounds, how do you say it? Right? It'd be like if I showed you a foreign language word and you've never heard it. How do you pronounce it? It's like reading Greek sometimes, right? You just throw out there what you think sounds best. Well, picture a deaf person. Somebody they cannot hear. They can't hear how the sounds are formed. They're going to talk very differently and very difficultly. Right? And so that's what we have here. We have a man who is deaf and who cannot speak well. He spoke with difficulty. But you know what's interesting is in that there is no remedies at this time. Right? Some modern medicine we've been able to help. We've been able to use hearing devices, implants, different things to help people to hear. We've learned techniques on how to teach people how to talk, right? Hearing and feeling the vocal cords as they make the sounds. But often, they were looked upon as mentally handicapped and ostracized from general society. Societies then were not very kind to the unfortunate. And the Jews especially... They looked oftentimes on those who were deaf or who couldn't speak as those who were being punished for sin. Matthew, I mean Matthew, John chapter 9 verse 1 and 2 speaks to that. They ostracized them from the community. They were very much like lepers in that way, except for they weren't forbidden from being among people. But people didn't want to have anything to do with them. But it's interesting here that he had people who cared enough about him to bring him to Christ. Because it says they, that implies more than one. And it implies the fact that there were those who cared enough about this man to bring him to the one that they've heard can do something. You know the beauty of this is that word implore. That word implore in the Greek means to beg or to entreat with urgency. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Others pleaded on his behalf with an urgent begging to come to the one who they know could care for them and fix their problem. Do we do that for others? How does our prayer life look? 
How does our preaching to other people look? Is it with a begging and an imploring to bring them to the one who can save them and bring healing? Or is it an eh? Maybe they'll hear about it from somebody else. Or this isn't really comfortable to talk about. Or they're going to be really angry with me for bringing it up. How do we plead? How do we beg? How do we draw others to Christ if we are not willing to put ourselves out there and bring them to Christ? They don't know they need to go. That's why they're lost. Do we pray fervently? Do we come to the throne of grace, begging for the mercy and the grace that Christ extends to all people who come to him in humility? Do we pray that God would draw their hearts? Do we pray for our children and our little ones, even those who sleep during the message? (laughs) Do we pray for them fervently? Why? Because God says that he delights in the salvation of his people. Do you believe that? If you believe God delights in people being saved, do you pray for the salvation of people? Do you implore? Do you follow Christ's example? Do you intercede on the behalf of those who are lost? Or do we cherry pick those whom we like? Those who are, man, they'd be good. Do we do what the book of James says and we look at, oh, that rich man needs to come in here because, man, he can give a lot of money in the coffer. Or do we come with those who are helpless and lost and live in darkness? And do we bring them to Christ? These Gentile men did that. Do we? If not, why not? Again, another one of my phrases I say often. If not, why not? What did they beg him to do? They implored him to lay his hand upon the man. It's interesting. Sense of touch. Why are we deeply a people needing of that, of touch? Why is that important? It's a deeply intimate thing, touch. It's a deeply personal thing, touch. The Pharisees despised it. They didn't want to be around people and touch people and they thought they'd get defiled by everybody. Jesus employed it often. The Pharisees thought it defiled them. Jesus proved that it cleansed. Jesus touched the leper in Mark 1. He touched the woman who had a 12-year bleeding issue, Mark 5. He touched the dead to bring them back to life, Mark 5. And here he touches the Gentile. You know what he proves? He proves that the the touch of Christ cleanses those who are corrupted. When Christ touched the corrupted, he didn't become corrupted. When he touched the corrupted, he cleansed them of their corruption. It's an interesting idea that we see over and over again. The idea of those who implore and beg for the personal touch of Christ to bring healing in their lives. Take that to the spiritual level. The personal touch of the Savior to bring healing. Because that's the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. It's the spiritual reality that's played out through what we can see in the physical reality. You can take the physical and look at it and extrapolate out the spiritual. That deep, intimate touch of Christ to draw us in. To cleanse us of our corrupted self. Again, the Pharisees despised it, but Jesus employed it. Jesus reached out 
and touched those who had a need. In a way that they didn't understand, they also had a deeper need. Do we speak that truth? You might ask, well, how did the deaf man hear of the gospel? Well, that's our next point. Point number three is signs which speak of the gospel. Verses 33 through 35. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. Think about this. You have a man who's being brought to Christ. One who is alone in the chains of utter quietness and isolation. He doesn't hear. He doesn't know what goes on. He's often not aware of things happening outside of his sight. He lives in isolation with his own thoughts. And now he's being taken aside and elevated to a place where he is alone with the Almighty Creator. Think about that. A man who is lost in the chains of isolation and quietness is brought to Christ who takes him and isolates him with himself. God in the flesh, the Creator, isolates this man to a point where it is him and God. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and what God does as he brings us face to face with himself. And then what does he do? He preaches the gospel to a deaf man using signs. Again, the title, Signs of Power and Compassion. I said that was a figurative word, and it is, and we're going to look at that. There was four signs that Christ used and employed to preach the gospel without words. Not saying to preach without words, because the gospel is words. But Christ preached to a deaf man through signs. First, he put his fingers in both his ears. Now, how many of you have read that and been like, why did he do that? It's kind of weird. Yeah, you get a couple of head bobs, right? Yeah, think about it. Man can't what? He can't hear. He doesn't speak well, so what do most people think of him? He's mentally handicapped, that he's got a mental problem. You know what Jesus does? He puts his fingers in his ears, and he recognizes the fact that here's your problem. You can't hear. It's not that you're stupid. It's not that you're mental. You can't hear your problem. I understand and acknowledge that it's not a mental problem, but that it's a physical problem of the ear. Christ is speaking to his need physically. This is your problem, and I acknowledge that. Secondly, he spit on his hand and he touched his tongue. Again, it's a recognition of another need. He can't speak right. Why? Well, because he can't hear. Saliva doesn't heal, and I'm just going to preface this whole conversation with that. He employed it in two other, in two other occasions, in Mark chapter 8, verse 23, and in John chapter 9, verse 6. There is no power in his saliva, okay? Why did he use it? You know what? In the ancient times, in this time specifically, and especially in pagan cultures, they believed that saliva had healing properties. Okay? So what Jesus is doing is now he's helping this man understand, I get your problem with your ears, and I get the problem with your tongue, and you know what I'm doing about it? I intend to bring healing. Because think about it. If saliva in that culture was looked upon as a thing used with healing properties, Jesus is saying, I get this, I get this, I'm going to heal. He spoke to the depth of this man's need. Do you know what joy that must have sprung in his heart? He gets that I can't hear. He gets that's why I don't speak well. And he intends to bring healing. Two more things. Then Christ looked up to heaven. That act alone, even to a pagan, made him understand my power comes from God. 
God in heaven who rules and reigns without another. And then he has a deep sigh. It's that great, sincere compassion and sympathy that comes out of the core of your being. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows because he was sorrowful over the fact that sin's effects is so devastating. This man understood that he knows that I can't hear. He knows I can't speak. He's going to heal me by the power of God and he loves me and he has sympathy for my condition. That is a clear teaching of the gospel of the power and the love and compassion of God without the words because the man couldn't hear the words. Jesus spoke to the greatest yearning of the man. I get your problem, and I've got the answer. What do our nonverbal actions speak to others? Again, everything Christ does is not only to preach the gospel, but it's to bring self-reflection. If Christ can preach the gospel in such a way and with such a need without words, what do our nonverbal actions preach to other people? Because your actions, what is that old expression? Actions speak louder than words. And it's often very true. I can say something, but sometimes my body language says something completely different. How do we preach to other people? Again, the gospel is the power of God under salvation. It is something to be preached verbally with words. But what do your actions show? What do your actions show to others? When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, what do they read in your countenance? What do they read in your body language? Is it, I'm doing this out of obligation because I know I should and I'm really uncomfortable with it? Or is it because I know that I have compassion for you because I know that you're lost? Is there a genuine love of Christ that they can see in your sharing with them the gospel? Now, sometimes it is uncomfortable. I'm not going to deny that. But it's always needed always needed mark employed the actual aramaic word ephratha and then he quickly translates it because why because the people who lived in rome spoke what greek they didn't speak aramaic so mark quickly translates in the greek that is be open he translated but he wanted to use the exact words of christ because christ spoke in the tongue of the people which was aramaic now if he was around jews it'd be hebrew but it was Aramaic for the Gentile nations, many of them. So what happened? What happened? Well, it says here, be opened. Verse 35, and his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. There are three things that happen here that are significant. First, his ears were open, meaning his hearing organs were made new. They actually worked. They functioned. His tongue was loosened. What did it say? It says that his impediment was taken away. That word impediment actually is the Greek word desmond. And what it means is it is bound or in chains. So basically what Mark is implying is that his speech was a prisoner of his deafness. Because he couldn't hear, his language was chained, which means he didn't speak well. He didn't speak correctly. He didn't speak right. He didn't understand a lot of the words, right? 
But you know what else happened? And oftentimes we, we overlook this real easy. He had perfect hearing and perfect speech, but there was another miracle that happened. He miraculously grasped language to speak plainly. He understood what words to use, how to use them, and how to communicate without going to speech therapy, without going and learning what words mean, how they sound. He could speak a word and you could understand it. That's what that word plainly means. That word plainly is orthos in the Greek, which means straight or right. That's where we get like orthopedics, orthodontics, to make straight or to make right. That's the word that Mark employs here. So you had the glory of new hearing and new speech, but he also spoke with great clarity like he'd always done it. When God heals, he heals completely and fully. There's not, oh, I'm going to heal you, but then you need to go over here to speech therapy. You need to learn how to talk now. You need to learn what words sound like. No, it was immediate. He could speak plainly. Isn't God awesome? The creator who made the ear and made the tongue loosened both and implied perfect speech to go along with it. Isn't that awesome? Again, over and above what we could ask for. What was that man probably after? Just so that he could hear and then that he could maybe talk again. And Jesus did it over and abundantly more. Fourthly, hearing but not listening. Speaking but not with knowledge. Verse 36 and 37. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Naturally, a man who has not been able to hear, not been able to speak, that now has the opportunity to do so because he can hear and speak, what's he going to do? He's going to talk a lot. He's going to hear his own voice. And he's going to hear what people are saying. And he's going to be able to respond. So naturally, what's he going to want to do? Guess what happened to me? Ask me a question. Right? Naturally, he's going to want to do that. But it says here that Jesus gave them orders. That word orders means a command. When God commands something, we need to listen. This man just got new ears where he can hear. But he's not listening to the word of the Lord. God said, do not spread around, proclaim what happened. It's interesting. Again, we're in the same region as the demoniac, right? The one that had a legion of demons. And Jesus did what? When he healed him, he said, go about and proclaim what the good things the Lord has done for you. But then with this man, he says, don't proclaim it. Do you know, it's not the first time. There's about 15 times in the Gospels where Jesus commands people to silence. And again, that was just a quick counting. Why? Sometimes it was not to stir up the crowd's fervor, right? Not to make a huge spectacle that people just keep flocking and coming because what? Oh, this man's a healer. He's a magician. He's a miracle worker. And that's what he's known for. Sometimes it was an act of judgment upon people to not speak the truth plainly. Again, to hide the truth from the wise. But the heart of it comes out of Mark Chapter 8, verse 30 and 31. Verse 30 and 31. And this is after Peter confesses that he is a Christ. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why? Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed 
and after three days to rise again. That is why. Because Christ isn't just a miracle worker. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just this or that. He is God in the flesh. And the gospel was not complete. Christ still had to go to the cross. Christ still had to suffer and die for the sins of the people. And rise again. The gospel was not complete. Jesus oftentimes withheld that and told the disciples, don't say anything. Why? Because one, you still need to learn what we're talking about. You still need to understand why I'm here. You need to understand my purpose. And it's to come and to suffer and to die and to be buried and to rise again as a propitiation for sin, as the sacrificial atonement for what you could never do. And the, and the guys didn't understand that until Christ did it. When Christ rose again, what? They understood exactly what the scriptures were saying. They understood that Christ had to die and he had to rise again as justification for our sin. Without the whole story of the gospel, if you just take experience, you can miss the point of the gospel. Again, it goes back to where is the place of a personal testimony? Go back to the fact that when people understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand it fully, full stop, right there, then my personal experience can maybe come into it. Because personal experience outside of the knowledge of the gospel really means not much. Because if people don't understand the glory of the gospel and understand what the gospel is, my experience is just another supernatural experience that really could be interpreted many different ways. We need to continue to point people to the gospel before we start to reflect ourselves in the gospel. We reflect ourselves in Christ by preaching the gospel. And it's the gospel of Christ. It's his gospel. Paul extrapolates it a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, it always goes back to the scriptures, the truth of God, God's word, God's language pointing to Christ and the sufficiency of his atoning sacrifice. That's what we need to point people to, is the gospel of God according to the scriptures. Because it's the word of God that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the word of God and the spirit of God that changes a heart. It is not me, it is not a man. It is not my personal testimony that's going to bring someone under conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is the gospel of God. It is the word of God, the power of God, using his spirit to convict and to crush a heart. And that crushing is important. It has to happen. Because if we continue to cling to our fleshy heart, and we do not surrender it, and it is not crushed and brought humble and low, God is not near, right? Scripture says, to whom am I, who is God close to? To those who are of a contrite heart. Those who have been crushed under the weight of their sin and yet set free because in that crushing they find release in Christ because Christ justified fully and completely. But what does the scripture here say? It says, with much warning came much disobedience. 
The more he warned them not to speak, the more they spoke. So again, it goes back and it answers the question that we started with, is who is permitted to speak but not able, and then who is able to speak but not permitted? This man was given a command. Even though how great your healing was, be silent. Let your testimony be in just people seeing and hearing and point people to Christ and to his gospel. He had his ears healed, but he didn't use them to glorify the Son of God through obedience. And it says that the crowd were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. That word, all things well, that phrase means God did everything perfectly. He healed perfectly, right? It wasn't a partial healing. It wasn't a partial, yeah, you get this, but you got to work for that. It was complete. It was perfect. Jesus did all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. That word mute is a very rare word. It's only used three times in the Gospels, all of them in the Gospel of Mark. And it's alolos, and it means to be without speech. But I told you we were going to look at that phrase back up in verse 32. That phrase spoke with difficulty. As the word here, mute, is rare, it occurs three times. That word up there, spoke with difficulty, comes from the Greek mogilalos. And I probably butchered it, but that's okay. It's only used once in the New Testament. Only used once. But if you go to the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is also used one time in the Old Testament, and only once. And it's very, very specific, and it's very, very exciting, because it has great importance. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. This is the only other occurrence of that word in the whole Bible. And it has to do with the coming glory of the millennial kingdom. A pointing forward, as if you will. Chapter 35, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely, and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. There's our expression. For the waters will break forth in the wilderness, and the streams, and the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass will become reeds and rushes, meaning water will be abundant. A highway will be there a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return, and they will come with joyful shouting to Zion, 
with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Mark uses a very, very rare phrase that is found only once elsewhere in the scriptures. And it's significant because it continues to point to the greatest truth and reality. The fact that our eternal destiny is bound up in the kingdom of heaven. That the coming of Christ's millennial kingdom will wipe away much. But yet there will also be a renewing at the end of that millennial kingdom. To the eternal kingdom. It continues to point out that truth and reality of the eternal reality of the kingdom of God. That it is coming. That it is sure. And that it will happen. And that Christ is the way to that. He is the road, the highway of holiness. Christ is the only way to come to God. It is the full truth of what the gospel is and what it is not. It is the miraculous life of Christ that was sinless, that was full of suffering, that was obedient until death, that was full of atonement, with burial, resurrection for our hope. That's the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. I can get there. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, this is how Paul summarizes the glory of the gospel. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into grace, into this grace in which we stand. And we fully exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's the gospel. That's the message that we are to called to preach. And we are called to preach it until Christ returns. Because if we are silent, even the rocks will cry out. And I praise God that today the rocks are silent. Because it means the gospel is being preached. It means God's people are being faithful to worship him as he deserves. Let us follow the example of Christ to disciple well and to preach the gospel effectively to those who need to hear it, to those who are deaf and blind and mute spiritually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for the blessed opportunity to be able to gather together as the body of Christ, to worship together in unity of heart and mind and spirit, because we all serve one Lord one God, and one gospel. Father, we thank you for the message of hope, yet again, that rings true throughout all the ages. Father, we thank you that you have brought to our hearts and our minds understanding of the gospel, that we no longer walk in deafness and darkness, but that we have ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, give us strength that we would use our tongues to preach the gospel continually, faithfully, to ourselves, to our families, 
and to those who are around us that we come in contact with on a day-by-day basis. Father, we just pray that your gospel would be glorified in and through your people. In Jesus' name, amen.